Three, two, one. We are officially on. Welcome to another episode of the True Leisure Podcast. I hope everyone is having a wonderful day so far. We are back with some more riveting discussions on various topics. We have a guest today, Professor Tad Lechman from UC Santa Cruz. Thank you, Professor, for agreeing to come on today. My pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? And tell the viewers who you are. Who is Professor Tad Lechman? <laughs> um, so as you mentioned, I, do, I teach at UC Santa Cruz. Um, I'm a little bit unique in that I teach in um, both of our game design programs. We've got one that's kind of art-focused and one that's engineering-focused, so I kind of teach on both sides. Um, but before uh, I came to UCSE, I spent a long time working in the games industry, um, and before that in film and animation, and... I think one of the reasons you want to talk to me is both in my teaching and also in my professional life, like story and storytelling and story development has been part of what I've done kind of the whole way along. So, and also like I have a literature degree from UC Santa Cruz. So I have a piece of paper that says I can talk about story. Ooh. <laughs> All right. You will, that makes you the perfect guest for our episode today. <laughs> Great. All right. So this episode is going to be a bit different because Game and uh, computer science, that's not really my forte. So for this episode, I'm going to be handing the reins off to Gurkirat, who is our local computer science expert. So G, take it away. Okay. Hi. Once again, uh, I'm G, and I am a game design major at Santa Cruz, and I met Tad through my class last quarter. So... That is why I invited him. Let us begin. So what is a story? Can someone just define it real quick? Alex hmm. reads. How about that? <laughs> so I got something. Maybe it's a... A story is a way to make sense of the world through maybe like a pattern so that our, our brains can digest it and it can be shared easily. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. I like because it. stories have been around for as long as humans have been able to speak. Since the beginning of human history, people have been telling stories. Nomadic tribes, they carried an oral tradition and they would tell stories and pass each story down to the next generation. And then as we settled down into communities and civilizations, we started writing down our stories, our oral traditions, and we created extensive, massive libraries of knowledge. And then in the 20th century, we kept on expanding, and we were we developed the technology to tell these stories using an audiovisual aspect through television shows and movies. Now, here we are in the 21st century, where we can be an active part of a story, through video games, we interact with the world, the mechanics of a game, within a game, to form these memorable experiences that we call stories. So now, what is the purpose of storytelling? Why do we tell stories? I'd say that there are two different types of stories. There are stories that are just pure entertainment value. And there are those that are meant to give a message. 
Now, most of the, uh, the stories we consider to be classics are those that send a message. They are often very cryptic. Like, for example, The Great Gatsby. Uh, they obscure a ton of symbol. Uh, they obscure their message through symbolism and metaphor, but they have a message. And video games can be very similar in that regard. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Tad, would you like to add anything onto that? Um. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would want to mention kind of as we're going through there, that that distinction between kind of entertainment and then having a message, it's not an either or. Um, and I think the most powerful stories are, are ones that do both at the same time. They're incredibly entertaining, but, you know, they may have a message that either is consciously unpacked by the viewer or the listener or the player, but might not be, but is still kind of absorbed and it's i i don't think i could i don't think i can even conceive of a story in any medium that doesn't have a message or median meeting beyond the kind of pure entertainment value whether the whether the storytellers intended it or not <laughs> i agree with that okay so let's get into some of the video games that retain this form of storytelling now obviously when video games first came out right they were just arcade mini games they you would go into an arcade and you would pay to play and the way these games were set up is that they were addicting they were they weren't very story focused they were more mechanical like for example pac-man right pac-man was just it was just a guy who collects Tic Tacs and avoids the ghosts and people loved it. But as we turned to more home entertainment systems, right? We developers began to use the technology that they had to make, still make mechanical games, but they also made games that could tell a story. And so um, that leads into what we know, what we call the retro stage of video games. And that refers to games that came out on the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System, the SNES, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Um, and some of these games include uh, Earthbound and Chrono Trigger. Now, what are some games that you guys grew up with that had a story that you remembered? that's a good one would donkey kong count like the early version because i remember they started off just as an arcade game but as they wanted to build sequels off of it mm -hmm. there was they brought the mario story out they evolved donkey kong to add diddy kong and all his family like there was a lot more that was built off of those base just arcade-esque games yeah yeah like donkey kong 64 yeah 64 we got Mario, the first 3D Mario game. I believe that was Mario 64 as well. Mm -hmm. And just building off like a very basic idea of lore where you have to save the princess or you have to catch all the bananas and make sure your uncle gets not addicted <laughs> to crack anymore. Like all, all these like, it's just building up on story from 
in between titles that has kept evolving as of recent. Like the new Skyrim game is coming out, and gee, I know you're the most uh, accustomed to the story. Do you know yeah. how the new yeah, game they... is going to relate to the old one? Yeah, so the Elder Scrolls um, franchise as a whole is all based upon this around this continent known as Tamriel, right? Yeah. And Skyrim only takes place on one of the continents. Well, if you have the DLC, it takes place on Morrowind as well. But mm-hmm. Skyrim is a country. And the next Elder Scrolls is... Every Elder Scrolls takes place on a different country. Um, and the next one is... They, Bethesda at E3, uh, I believe 2018, they released a teaser. And it was just a 30-second clip of... It was, <laughs> it was just so panning fast. over the... It was just panning over the landscape of yeah. uh, where the city was, and people knew. Even even when I when I saw it, I automatically knew like which country it is. I'm like, oh, it's that's probably Hammerfell because uh, of the distinct land masses mm-hmm. that were described, or the land features that were described in the lore that uh, we loved to uh, give our attention to. For sure. For sure. Like mm-hmm. so, what I'm thinking now is, uh, Tad. This is where I want to ask you, where you have a popular title in your mm-hmm. hands as a game company or as an indie developer. How do you? What are the different ways you can branch off just the story aspect of it to try to translate into a new game? Mm-hmm. There's a few options, and we can talk about some examples of each. Um, Elder Scrolls is actually like Skyrim, and Elder Scrolls is a good example too. That that is a franchise that those games have story kind of built into them you know the opening cinematic that many of us have seen many many times starting new characters in skyrim (laughs) where you're in the back of a wagon and you're going to be executed like that is that is an amazing start to a story and that you escape by you know fleeing and fighting a dragon like that that is, there is almost no gameplay in the beginning of that game. It's just run away, learn the controls. Um, and it kind of, it starts out 100% story and then starts adding gameplay and interaction as you go. So that is one kind of one way is to kind of have the, have the story that kind of has gameplay and interaction kind of bolted onto it. The, the, you know, the main quest line for Skyrim with some of the added side quests, like you could write that out as a novel. Fact, has there been? There must have been Skyrim tie-in novels. There has to have been, right? Yeah, that's that would be a incredible I don't know the... opportunity. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think that would work fine without a lot of changes. Um, and so that is kind of a more kind of story-forward way of doing it. And then there are other ways of doing it too, which are more the way that like League of Legends. Um, and Overwatch do it where there are stories, but they're not actually in the game. They're kind of adjacent to the game. So they're happening um, in animated cinematic movies. They're happening in online comics. They're happening in pieces of fiction. They're happening in um, all sorts of other kind of fragmented stories that you might find online related to kind of the characters in those games. But those games don't have like, story kind of in them as you play um, directly. There's some things like, you know, emotes and conversation clips of 
dialogue between characters that give you an idea that they have a relationship between each other, or kind of give you a feel for that character. But I don't think we'd be hard pressed to call those like that. There's a story happening in Overwatch or in League. Um, so that's another way to do it is kind of have it adjacent or outside of the game itself, but still informing the game for sure. Um, those are, I think, the kind of the two main ways um, of doing it. And then, you know, those, there are, you know, there's dials you can turn as far as like how much story versus how much gameplay. And obviously, ideally, you want the interactive parts to reinforce the story and you want the story to kind of resonate with the interactive parts as well. Agreed. Well said. I honestly do like like the way League of Legends and Overwatch does it. Because it, whenever you play, it feels like you can at least joke around with the people in the game. It's like, oh, uh, I'm playing uh, Senna's husband and I have to fight my own wife? That's crazy. Like, it's like you really get immersed into it, even if it's not really in the foreground of the game. It's interesting, though, because, you know, we, you mentioned we mentioned lore before and there is there is kind of a blurry line between lore and story. Lore to me feels more like kind of the setting and the background and kind of the more historical um, kind of uh, component of the setting. Basically, it's like it's world building. Um, and then story feels like when we say story, we're probably talking more about like the things that happen, the, the experiences that we have as a player through our character. Because um, there are a lot of people who play games like you can play and enjoy Overwatch and League without engaging in the stories or the lore, for that matter, outside. Um, and there are people who like don't ever stop to pick up any scrap of paper, don't read any books in any RPG games that don't care about any of the lore or backstory. They just want to, you know, tick off the things in their quest log, um, which I think is interesting that that there that is different from. You know, there are other games that when it's time to tell the story, whether it's in a cinematic or in a scene that you lose some of your control, like, you, you, sorry, we're telling a story right now. <laughs> so your gameplay is stopping right now. And I know some different players have different reactions to, um, you know, cinematics. Some players think of them as a reward, especially, you know, especially in like JRPGs. Um, beautiful cinematics have been kind of a reward for gameplay for a long time, but they're also like, you know, we all know players who get angry. We, some of us <laughs> may be those people <laughs> who are like, Oh, how is there no skip button? <laughs> Please always give us a skip button. Um, so it's, it's interesting also as many different ways as you can weave a story or integrate a story into a game. There are at least that many different ways, if not more, that players will engage with your story in ways that you don't expect and have no control over. Are you, of, of those of you, like, so, gee, clearly you're invested in lore, <laughs> at yeah. least for Skyrim. Yeah, uh, definitely. But uh, what about the rest of you? Like, is that stuff you care about in games or is it vary from game to game? Alex, you're the RPG player. I want to hear what you have to say on that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I definitely say it varies. Like, I had a really good time with Persona 5, just mm. absorbing the story. But for things like maybe Breath of the Wild, 
mm-hmm. even though the story is still great, the gameplay is a lot more enjoyable for me than the story was just to mess around with all the physics. Especially so, in kind of an open world where you really just can't go and do things and there's pl- right. plenty of ways to exercise those cool, uh, it's, it feel, and it feels so good, that game. Like combat is so good and traversal is so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah there, there's a lot of diversity in Breath of the Wild especially. Mm-hmm. So with that, um, Alex, I was wondering, so what happens when you hit a cutscene in that game? How do, how do you react to something like that? Um, generally they aren't, it's, it depends if it's my first playthrough, then sure. I'm interested in the story, right? And, you know, I'm willing to sit through it, but maybe if it's the fourth playthrough, then it gets (laughs) kind of boring, right? Well, there's no surprise for the story. Surprise is still happening in the gameplay, but not so much in the story. Yeah, I do. I can see that. Were there novelties gone? Were there? So you mentioned like Chrono Trigger and Earthbound. Are there other games kind of from that retro stage? Like it is an interesting, interesting to think about kind of the relationship between story and games changing once they kind of came home from the arcade, Um, and also how that changed from you know, console generation to console generation and also like PC games versus console games, just because you've got as a, as a game developer, you've got more resources to tell stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, sorry. I was going to say, like I said, there are games that are more mechanical, right? Mm-hmm. And there isn't as much of a focus on a story, but there is still a story. One of my favorite examples is uh, Metroid, right? Mm-hmm. There's so much expanded lore in Metroid that you can encounter in the games through like hidden chambers, but overall, like it's more mechanical. Like, oh, I gotta do this wall jump, or oh, I gotta pop this uh, this freeze ray. So I think that okay. yeah, uh, there are games, other games as well that have that focus on story, but they also balance it with uh, the mechanical aspect. think tad you brought up something like a really important distinction to make which was the from the arcade they come to the the home right with the nintendo entertainment system and the i guess atari might have been the first one yeah yeah but that that distinction is huge because it's not really you're not waiting in line to like play an arcade cabinet anymore yeah, and there's a good example too, just co- cost and time-wise. <laughs> um, so there was a, a, a Laserdisc-based game called Dragon's Lair in the arcades that you may be familiar with. Oh, right. It had yeah. like legit 2D Don Bluth animation. And, um, you know, it was it was like watching, you know, Secret of Nim, but it was a fantasy kind of D&D style game and you know you would use the joystick to make decisions and then it would based on that decision it would pick which 2d animated scene to 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 display to you and so it was you know their goal was an interactive animated movie and it was they were pretty successful with that but 
to, you know, watch the whole story unfold. Also, that game, I remember when that game came out, it was so different from everything else because it was, you know, it wasn't rendered graphics. It was a movie playing. Um, it was 50 cents a play. So it was twice as expensive. Um, and it was not very forgiving. So you would get, you know, like 30 seconds to a minute of the movie, of the story, and then you would die. <laughs> and then right. you have to, and I don't remember, I don't think it had, you could continue. But again, it was 50 cents a play. So that was a lot of money to, you know, 1980s teens um, or preteens. So that was kind of, it was kind of mean because <laughs> we couldn't really see the whole story. But when you got home, you know, playing on, you know, ColecoVision, Atari, um, NES, SNES, like, or even on, you know, I had an Apple II computer at home. A lot of my friends had like Commodore computers. Like the fact that you could pay, you know, $30 for a game and then you can play it as much as you want. You have to keep pumping quarters in. You're not competing. Like you said, you're not waiting in a line to play Ultima or whatever. Like you just play it. Um, I think that was, uh, it was a big change for players and it certainly was a big change for game developers. They had a kind of a bigger palette to tell stories. Right. You did bring up something that I would like to discuss further. Um, the whole part about the branching narrative. That is, I think, something different that is not represented in the other mediums of storytelling that I described before. The fact that you can influence the way, the way that a story turns out mm -hmm. is what makes video games unique as a storytelling device. And I think that... Uh, most games like now, right? There is a linear story like in Halo. You just yeah. shoot stuff and keep on progressing. Uncharted. You, you're going to get to the same place at the end, basically. Yeah, but games like Detroit Become Human, mm -hmm. where everything that you do has an effect. I think those kinds of um, those kinds of games are sort of the segue into the way that storytelling will be in the future. If in the future, like there might be more a branching narrative stories just because of how much more content it would uh, convey. It's, but it is also kind of this exponential increase in time, energy and cost. Um, yeah. Which I, it's, you know, I'm sure, especially if we're talking about like big AAA games, I'm I'm sure that that, you know, who who knows how many games that we now know as fairly linear games were pitched as, you know, and there'll be like 12 different paths. And depending on what you do, by the end, you'll get to all each of these different endings. Like, I'm sure a lot of those get pitched. And then as soon as, you know, budgetary reasons and other other things factoring is like, you know what, let's just pick the best story path that we have and <laughs> right. do that. But I yeah. wondered about, um, things like procedurally gener generated content, um, being able to, instead of having to hand craft, you know, all the things associated for each of the branches on a narrative, being able to instead build systems that can kind of generate that material on the fly. Cause remember we're talking about, 
3D models and textures and animation and in some cases dialogue um, and kind of performance and there's you know someone's got to write all that dialogue and figure out all those stories like it if there if the technology can help us to either make that content faster or cheaper or in a higher volume with fewer folks um, I think that will open the doors, I think, more than any other single thing. Um, it's just a huge amount of additional work. However, having said that, I, I, what you're, what you seem to also be implying, and what you're saying is that, like, as a player, it can be much more satisfying to know that you took your game in a direction that someone else playing it may not have taken it. And it makes it a more unique experience for you, Um, which I think is pretty cool. I'm trying to think of other games that have done that well or done it, you know, there are lots of games that do it kind of in small ways. Uh, You know, there are some games like Fable, the Fable series that have kind of karma systems where if you do, quote, bad things, it kind of changes the trajectory of the game and your character. If you do good things, it changes them differently. but you still kind of wind up in the same place, <laughs> same place. Um, but man, I would like to see, I and mean, then there's a reason G2 that in our class, when we're talking about branching narratives, like a lot of what we're talking about winds up being, you know, like choose your own adventure books or other or twine games where the resource that you need to create more branches, of that narrative are like letters and words and text which are relatively cheap <laughs> in the world of game development. Yeah. Um, and so it makes it easier to do that kind of branching, branching narrative. Um, yeah. I think it's, I, I, I'm thinking now about two kind of related are open world games, um, which are similar, but different to branching narratives. Cause you're, you, they almost always have a kind of, singular kind of main quest line but the way that you approach it you know my my experience playing an open world game can be very different than yours um and it still has all of the um cost of making every place you could possibly visit in that world someone's got to build all those assets um but it's i wonder if the success of open world games um, might help get us toward more kind of differentiated branching narratives. Cause I, I agree. I think that that is a direction that we can and, and should be going. Yeah. For yep. your, um, for foundations of game design, uh, if I remember our midterm uh, project was to create a branching narrative twine game. And, and how was that experience for you? That was, it was definitely tedious to create various branches and connect them all, uh, even though we were using Twine, which is so, such a simple, mm-hmm. it simplifies everything, but it was still so tedious. So I, I understand the whole thing about it being um, more requiring a bigger budget. And if you think too, like, it's hard enough to tell a good story that just goes in one direction, (laughs) but to then have 
a story that branches and has multiple equally satisfying, like you're also, you're multiplying the, the problem of just telling a good story, period. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. Which I think gets to the other kind of thing that we probably should talk about a little bit, which is, is that difference between games and other mediums that tell stories in that as a storyteller, if you're also a game developer, um, you're giving up a lot of your storytelling tools and decision-making to the players who play your game. And that's a, that's a lot different type of story to design. You know, if I can say something real quick. Yeah. One thing that I feel like contributed to the huge demand that we see in open world games and, uh, Obviously, there are many different factors, but I feel like part of that could be that there's always been that demand by the people to control the narrative. And if we're talking specifically about the narrative and other mediums, you you can see that that sort of idea of trying to change the outcome of a story or trying to influence the choices made by the characters has always been there. And you can see that with books especially and more specifically graphic novels have Mm -hmm. that aspect to it and even novels like um i'm trying to think harry potter i think is a good example with because harry potter has that huge fan base and you Mm -hmm. see that a lot of the uh, people that belong to that fan base they take the the core storyline of harry potter and then they change it up and they create their own stories and they create their own um, uh, fan fiction. That's like the official word of it. Yeah. And I think when we talk about games that just sort of perfected that aspect of it, of creating your own story. And, you know, before back when I remember back when I was in elementary school, we had interactive books and choose your own adventure books. Like, like you taught, you guys talked about earlier. And there's, I feel like there's something really satisfying about that because when you're reading a book, you, you, there's definitely that immersion within the character that you experience when you read a book, but it just makes it a bit more deep. It gives it a bit more mm-hmm. depth. If not only do you immerse in the narrative and in the character, but you also can create your own little world within that narrative. As it's opposed to books. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just uh, I'm done. I was just gonna say like it gives it more depth as opposed to just as opposed to you know just going with the flow of the narrative. It's definitely like a novel has is has kind of like the ultimate character creator tool, right? <laughs> because you're literally building what everyone looks like, what mm-hmm. everyone sounds like, even how they think to themselves. So you right. really are customizing that experience hugely when you're reading a novel um, in a way that I think that lends a lot to that immersion. And I just was thinking too about, you know, people who, if we're playing a game and we want to, if we kind of want to skip over cinematic parts, you know, that's part of being a reader of a novel too. Sometimes you can be like, Oh, you know what? This part's boring. I'm going to skip over this part. Or I know some people, sometimes if a book 
has really good characters and dialogue. I'll kind of read the dialogue parts carefully, but then I'll like skip <laughs> the other mm-hmm. descriptive parts. It feels like that's the same the same reflex as skipping cinematics in a game. Right. Um, but I think that um, it's it's interesting to think about those choose your own adventures as kind of the the an interesting hybrid of that ultimate character creator environment art modification tool of your imagination, but also like giving you some options to go in different directions with the the plot. Right. And see the thing. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that this whole conversation reminds me of this quote I read and I don't remember the exact quote word, but word for word, but the, the gist of it was that to think and to create ideas within yourself is to essentially create different characters in your own mind and letting them go to war with each other. If you want Ooh, to tr- truly be able to think. And I feel like that's really interesting and it connects to the idea of narrative in, in a really interesting way because I've written short stories before and different I've created characters for the various stories that I've written. And one thing that is really uh, a main theme that I found that kept repeating every time you write a story and every time you create characters is you have to resist the temptation to make the character like yourself. Mm. And I don't know if anybody else has experiences. I'm sure people who've written other stories have experiences, but to create different characters with personalities that are really like opposite of what you originally are is the ultimate test of how well you can create a character because i feel like anybody can create a character who that thinks like them who behaves like them but in order to create a character that's vital to the narrative that is completely different from how you are Mm -hmm. and to be able to place yourself in the shoes of that character is a really incredible thing and i think that's a tool that every single storyteller whether it's video games whether it's books whether Mm -hmm. it's movies the person should be able to adapt to it there's a corollary to that too which is no matter how hard you try as a writer to make characters that aren't you and as, right. no matter how successful you are, mm-hmm. there's still part of the writer in every character. Right. Right. <laughs> Just because right. that's the only experience that you have. Um, and I think it's a, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting thing to think about too. Right. Um, and you know, one of the ways that one of the reasons that, has been posited that overall kind of culture and civilization have been moving toward a place of, you know, increased um, empathy and increased kind of peacefulness, you know, in the aggregate, obviously Mm -hmm. there are pockets where this is not true, but overall, and part of the reason that, that has been speculated that that might be true is because of novels. Because when you read a novel, you become someone else and you are building muscles to empathize with other people because you are, because of that, you know, because you can cast this person as anyone else. And usually I think, I don't know, when you read a book, how, 
like when you're imagining a character or when you're just kind of reading a character, like, do you use your voice? Like I, I often kind of, <laughs> maybe it's just me being lazy. <laughs> um, but I think that that's, you know, that's a, that's that ability for you to kind of become someone else in a novel is amplified in some ways and diminished in other ways in a, in a game because, um, gee, we talked about this in the class too, that one of the main connections that a player has with a game that they're playing or has with a character in a game is control. Yeah. You do something and that other, that artificial person, even if they're just, you know, a Pac-Man as abstract as they are, like that's a hugely strong connection. Yeah. It's that psychic link. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can't do that in a novel, like as much as you want. I do want to go back, though, to fan fiction because i that's a really interesting idea that there are lots and lots of fans of lots of different series and novels that get so kind of dedicated to it and really do want to make their imprint on it. And so they just... They write their own. They write their own fan fiction. But I, I just, I wrote down as we were, as you were talking, I was like, ooh, it's kind of like fan fiction is like an expression of frustration that you can't change a narrative right. that you really like. Exactly. Mm. Which is really cool. Yeah. And another thing with the whole like fan fiction idea, not, not fan fiction exactly, but when you, you read a book, you don't have every exact detail. We don't have the language to really describe yeah. everything that we have so when like we, we talk about harry potter you look at jk rowling saying that dumbledore is gay well for one when you read the book you don't really see him as a a sexual character you don't think about no. that it's like yeah it, who's he dating that's not what comes into your head he's very like, <laughs> and he's very very much doing work more than anything yeah. else so when she goes and says that every a lot of people feel betrayed because i didn't even Think of that as a character aspect of that person. So it's almost like the whole fanfic idea where he's this character doesn't fit in with my idea of what the story is. Mm. And like that really highlights the difference between player control and the narrative the the game developer is trying to tell through the story. It's definitely not easy, especially when you relinquish that control. But what's it that's it brings up another specific example that I think ties in nicely to that, which is like some of the Bioware games like Dragon Age and there's some other games that where as a player playing a character, you can um, you know, develop relationships with non-player characters that vary from you know antagonistic to casually friendly to like, oh yeah, no, we're going to get married. Um, but you have like you have ultimate control over not just kind of the story life <laughs> of the character, but also like the personal life of the character. Um, right. That um, reminds me because we were talking about Harry Potter and the idea of the character not fitting into your narrative. I feel like anybody who's read Harry Potter or who's been a fan of the series knows about the war that rages over the character of professor snape mm-hmm. and and how people there's there's the people and how you mentioned characters 
going between antagonistic and friendly and how there's there's a group of people who consider Professor Snape to be an, an antagonist. And then there's the other group of people who consider him to be a friendly because there's just such a dynamic of his character where he switches between those two characters, those two uh, personas of antagonistic yeah. and friendly. And I feel like, and that that's also been the source of many uh, frustrated fan fiction stories. I feel like with Harry Potter, with people, because they feel like maybe JK Rowling betrayed their idea of what professor Snape could be. So they write him as a completely friendly character. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other people who write him as a completely antagonistic character because, Ooh, that's interesting. because with his dynamic, because he switches between the two, there are people who, uh, understandably get split between the two personas and want to pull the character towards their own side. So that leads to quite a bit of frustration for the character and the narrative because they feel like that their idea of the character does not fit into the narrative. Like Ethan said earlier, you could read that another way though, too, which is the fact that Snape is set up as kind of a villain antagonist and then turns out that he's been, whether or not it was well telegraphed in the earlier novels, but it turns out he's actually been friendly and helpful, but is ultimately a super tragic character. Right, right. Like one way to read that is like, oh, he's a three-dimensional, more kind of realistic human character. And I think for some people, they're like, no, I want him to be one-dimensional. Right. <laughs> Please stop making right. him confusing and like a real person. Right. Um, which is which is a an interesting reaction. Um and it's it's tough too because those books too, you know, talk about watching a storyteller kind of improve their craft right before your eyes. Like the early books clearly are written by a novice, a novice writer who got right. better. <laughs> And probably learn like, oh, wait, I have, there are more things I could do with these characters. Right. Um, but still bound by those earlier books and whatever past her wrote, <laughs> she has to kind of, and it's, you know, it comes up with Star Wars. It comes up with Marvel, like anything that becomes a multi-chapter, multi-book, multi-part franchise, like canon is like, can be a tricky thing that's not always helpful. Right, it can be especially tricky when you write something like The Cursed Child and yeah. consider that canon because a lot of people just, I don't know when The Cursed Child first came out, people were completely blown away. Like, what is this? Because they saw this entire timeline and this narrative being stretched over seven books and then suddenly there's just plot twist upon plot twist. It's um, it brings up a kind of a tangent that we probably don't have will take us a little far afield from what we're talking about today. Yeah. But that yeah. idea of fan ownership and feeling like, um, you know, once it's out there and once it's a thing that I feel passionate about and I love that when things change, when a creator changes their thing, mm-hmm. it makes me mad because right. I could because like we've been talking about like. 
part of the power of storytelling in any medium is you get to use your imagination to interpret it and make it right. useful and meaningful to yourself. Right. And that's a double-edged sword <laughs> because if the, if the parts of the story that you author for yourself start misaligning with the creator's version of the story, it, it's, it can be uncomfortable. Right. No, definitely. It's... I do want to, I do want to uh, kind of transition from this. Hmm. So one thing I was thinking about while you guys were talking about character ownership, right? Hmm. And character creation and how in our minds we have our own uh, version of our of the characters in the story. I do think about... So the four of us, uh, along with other friends, we play... Dungeons and Dragons frequently. Mm-hmm. And I think about character creation and how we try to make our character what we want it to be. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the character will be representative of us only. Mm-hmm. But what personally I've been trying to do is trying to play as something I wouldn't normally play as. Yeah. If for example, I always would make chaotic neutral characters that wouldn't be trusting of any of, of the other party members. <laughs> but for the most recent campaign we started, I actually decided to play a lawful good character mm-hmm. and just try to see where that would take me. And I think the the whole the tabletop system for the tabletop game mm-hmm. uh, system is just something that breeds creativity and I would honestly like to see it better translated into video games, which is done really well in some aspects. Like for example, um, Skyrim, which I'm Mm -hmm. going back to that because that's my, that's my thing. (laughs) You can make whatever character you want and you can have them do whatever quests you want. I have done over, 20 runs of Skyrim with different characters and each one of them is so vastly different mm-hmm. not just in what skills they spec into and how they fight but more what kind of uh what kind of role they play in the game and who they talk to who they despise and who they marry and things like that, mm-hmm. that I always that keeps me coming back to the game yeah now one of the things that I wanted to talk about in this podcast was uh, the advent of virtual reality and augmented reality. Now, um, I'm not, I'm not, it's not to say that Skyrim VR isn't, you know, revolutionary. But <laughs> it, ha- it has its problems. If it you has played it. <laughs> step in the right direction mm-hmm. because it, it brings that element of creating your own character to VR mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that I really would like to work on when I've graduated and everything, right? I want to develop VR RPGs mm-hmm. and hopefully the VR industry will have taken off by then. But as of right now, it looks like VR isn't as popular. And one of the reasons why is hardware limitations, Yeah, right? A lot of people feel that the headsets are bulky or they know that it's too expensive yeah. or... Uh, there's a bunch of problems with VR right now that will, I think, will be fixed uh, in the years to come. And uh, another thing, Tabletop Simulator has VR support, 
And we frequently use Tabletop Simulator for our uh, Dungeons and Dragons sessions. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so we don't use VR headsets, but we use it for our thing. And we can control most of we can control the pieces yeah and so that brings that element of interactivity to the game it's interesting because playing online playing tabletop role-playing games online with my friends lately um you know i have different different groups of friends that i play tabletop role-playing games with and some of them are more tactical and they like using like minis on the table and grids and combat that way it's a little more like Warhammery, and mm-hmm. then I have friends who are just like, no, we're just gonna. It's gonna be theater of the mind. We're gonna talk, and that's fine. And I think what you're describing with using tabletop simulator would absolutely kind of scratch the itch for more tactical and more just kind of like I need to see where we are in relationship to the goblins. <laughs> like yeah. I need to see that, or I don't know my brain can't like, fill in. I feel like we are all super tactical players. Yeah. Like. All of us have that connection where it's like, all right, we are going to outbrain the enemy. We're going to outbrain the DM, and we're going to line up this guy over here so we can land that collateral lightning bolt or something like yeah. that. Um, it's really it's really fun in that regard. There's yeah. a um, I can't remember who there was somebody working on a VR kind of solution for remote D and D and other tabletop role-playing games. And they were basically kind of allowing you to similar to what you're talking about, but like even more dramatically detailed kind of build out your whole dungeon in 3d and put, you know, put the players now kind of blur that line even more. And each person would see from basically from inside the tabletop terrain like from the miniatures point of view. And mm. <laughs> someone had asked, I think I was listening to a podcast where someone was talking about this and someone asked like, wait, how do we represent the dungeon master in this scenario? And oh, the answer was, oh, they're they're up, they're full size, they're hovering over the table, <laughs> like <laughs> up in the sky, like a god. I was like, oh no. <laughs> um, but I think there's a reason that tabletop Role-playing games, certainly D&D is still the most popular one, but there are so many other ones that are really getting very popular and and lots of different folks trying, especially like independent ones. And I think the reason that they're so popular right now is because they are doing something that video games have been trying to do, but keep hitting these limitations we've been talking about for this whole podcast. Yeah. But because they're using the supercomputers that are human imaginations and collaborative storytelling, like all of the, all of the problems we've been talking about for the last hour are all pretty easily solved playing around a table or playing yeah. in tabletop sim or playing over zoom. Yeah. The only thing about that though, is that it requires everybody to be together. And obviously yeah. we have our own schedules and yeah. we can't always meet up for a, a session, but when we do, it's amazing. Yeah. And that's, it's, but your, your point is a good one because it's, you know, it's no harder than scheduling any other meeting. I mean, it's no easier than scheduling any other meeting of people with busy schedules. And also um, like, sometimes I just enjoy 
exploring a story and a place by myself. Like I am one of those people who gets who who gets upset when you know a new game comes out that used to have a single player campaign and also like oh and now it's only online multiplayer. It's like oh yeah. but I want to Titanfall. I want to oh, okay there it is. <laughs> and then usually pretty quickly a, a developer we're like okay fine we'll do some sort of first person but it's or single player but it's usually not as great but that there's it's a it's a different experience kind of playing Skyrim as a good example like playing Skyrim by myself and kind of I I am responsible for decisions I don't have to talk to anybody I can kind of do what I want maybe I'm you know watching my family play or maybe they're watching me play and so maybe we're kind of co-playing Skyrim but it's a different experience than than playing D&D yeah there was one huge part of um, the class that I took that really got me thinking. And it was the section we did on gamer motivations. Mm. That to me was mind blowing. Cause I never thought about why do I play video games? Yeah. And uh, just for everybody else, I will summarize uh, the six types of gamer motivations. There's people that play for the action. There's people that play for the, social aspect of working together or going against each other there's mastery which is i want to master this game i want to get what i can out of it there's achievement which is i want to earn all the achievements and collect all the collectibles immersion i want to be part of the story and finally creativity i want to make something out of this game personally i am a mastery slash immersion player uh, but everybody else, everyone has their own preference. And that's why I tend to play more single-player games. And that's why I wanted to talk about storytelling yeah. in video games. It's a, that's an interesting combination, too. Mastery and immersion. Yeah. Um, you know, because you think about a lot of folks that we might know, that we might intuit are mastery players, would be playing more kind of like fighting games like smash bros or or league of legends that i do play i guess they're immersive i guess they're immersive just in a different way Mm -hmm. a ton of people like i I can see mastery being paired up with uh competitive competitive play yeah but for me it's more like i want to learn every single exploit about this game like like in halo right grenade Mm -hmm. jumping Mm -hmm. that and uh, gravity hammer jumping. That is something that I, um, that's something I want to use as a tool to, I want to see Master Chief fly across the map. <laughs> Who does That's a story I want to make. <laughs> that's, yeah. But it's, that's, oh, that's, and that brings up another thing too, which is kind of emergent gameplay that was not intended by the creators that has an effect on how you interact with a game that just kind of like, if they'd wanted Master Chief to fly through the air like that, they would have, you know, included many, many ways for that to happen mm-hmm. on purpose. <laughs> but it's still, yeah. it's still a joyful thing, even though it wasn't designed. But gamer motivations are, it's, it's just, I think it's an interesting exercise for everyone to do, even if it's not as kind of rigorous as like applying that methodology of those specific types of gamers, even just thinking about like, wait, what games do I love? What games do I keep coming back to? What types of games do I like to play? 
And then what do they all have in common? Um, and it's interesting. I, I am, I can't remember on the official survey. I think I came back as like immersive. Mm, mastery was not high on my list. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is good. Cause I, well, actually I, there's some things I've, I've gotten good at. Um, but um, I tend to be more of a grazer and I tend to like lots of different types of games. Um, but, you know, typically uh, every once in a while at the end of teaching one of my classes over the course of a, of a term, I'll get some students who come to office hours. And they're like, you say you like to play all kinds of games, but we've looked at all the clips you've shown us all quarter. And here's what we're going to tell you. You like, like, <laughs> like dark, depressing single player survival games that might have horror and they definitely have an animal companions. I was like, what? <laughs> and then I look it back and like, Oh yeah. Nope. Nope. Yeah. That, you, nope. You've hit you, all those. <laughs> a lot of the content you showed us in the class was from, uh, the Witcher three yeah. from, from journey. And, yeah. uh, would papers please count? Ooh. That is dark. Yeah, no, for sure. That fits in. And it's, you know, like existential dread is another thing. Like, but like, you know, yeah. okay, below and inside. Also, I guess I like games that are named with prepositions. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a couple of other ones that are just like, oh yeah, that's you've you've got my number. <laughs> but it's a it's a useful exercise. I'm 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 pleased to hear that that was something that you found interesting about the class, especially if your goal is to make games because understanding what you like and why it works for you will also help you figure out like, well, who am I making this game for? Um, and then how do I, how do I make that a better experience for the person who wants that type of gameplay experience? Mm -hmm. All right. So we're nearing the end. So I would like to talk about, virtual reality and storytelling a little bit more. Yeah. What do you think are some of the new possibilities that would come up with uh, the rise of the genre of VR RPGs? Like what are some of the things that you think that people will enjoy about virtual reality? Well, we talked about affect storytelling. Before we started rolling, we meant we were talking a little bit about Half-Life Alex, which um, I have I haven't played yet, but I have a number of friends who are playing and um, the thing that keeps coming up for a lot of people who are talking about it is kind of the attention to detail that like everything works like it would. So if you're walking around inside an, an apartment and you're interacting with things, like they're doing things the way that they should, which is, was one of the kind of the mind blowing things about the original half-life was you've got these tools, you need to get out of this room there are 30 different ways to get out of this room just to figure out how you want to do that. I think Alex taking that like one step even further, but I think the thing that VR has going for it um, is kind of related to things we've been talking about, about controlling a character, but also like um, empathy with a character as well. Like sometimes VR is called an empathy machine. Um, you know, once they can figure out how, you can see your hand, you can lift up your hands in front of your face and see them in VR and flex your fingers and all the fingers go. Right now, there's a few things that are not quite mapping one-to-one. -one. Hands are definitely one that 
we just need some more sensor technology to do. Um, something I think VR might do that regular video games haven't been able to do on the character side too is like if you're playing a character in VR who's much heavier than you are, much taller or much shorter, like height is pretty easy to get across in VR in a way that it's not kind of when you're looking at a, at a screen. Um, but once we start getting more like haptic feedback stuff, now we're talking about like being able to feel things and feel the weight of things, um, feel resistance when you push things. Now we're also talking about increasing the cost of entry <laughs> for everybody even higher than it already is. But yeah. I think taking, taking the- advantage of that, you are fully in, you know, in the skin of this character. Um, and removing some of those mastery elements of like learning, even in something as, as straightforward, you know, we've learned so many things in games like Skyrim that make it easy for us to jump into the Witcher and be like, okay, I know which, which joystick controls the camera. I know, or if you're playing on a PC, like, you know how to control the camera in a character, but there is something pretty amazing about being in a VR rig and just turning your head to look in a different direction, <laughs> um, to lift up your hand, to, you know, lift your sword up in front of you. Like that yeah. removal of a level of kind of needing to learn how to control your character, I think will make, um, you know, especially telling kind of RPG stories, um, much more powerful. We, we mentioned Skyrim VR in passing and it's, it's interesting um, gee, have you played it? Have you played Skyrim in VR? I have not. I have yet to do so. So I had watched a bunch of recordings of people playing. It. I was like, okay, I got this. And then we do have a VR room that students and faculty can use at, at school at UCSE. And so I was like, oh wait, there's Skyrim. We should do this. And I had a group of students. We were looking at, at the room together. I was like, okay, we're going to play this now. And wow, it's it is very clearly a game that was not designed for VR <laughs> and just things like walking around super hard. Whereas if, you, if you're playing Skyrim on any other platform, like walking around is easy. Um, it yeah. was, I think it's an interesting experiment, but I think um, it would be interesting to compare kind of the effectiveness of that to something like um Half-Life Alex that was designed from the ground up, not just to be a VR game, but to like be a return to the Half-Life franchise, which we've been waiting for forever. Um, yeah. And at the kind of level of quality that Valve is cares about. And also like, you know, Valve wants to sell you VR headsets. <laughs> so they want it to be as cool as possible. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that will be the main thing. I think that will make be a game changer, no pun intended, for like RPGs and putting them in VR is game developers and designers learning how to use all the things that are special about VR, just like we're still learning to use all the things that are special about games and interactive uh, storytelling, using to use, learning to use all those tools in a way that makes that story more immersive and does things with it that you couldn't do in another medium. Mm-hmm. Alex, do you have any experience with uh, VR? Um, not a lot. We went to that. Um, we went to Halo Outpost and we did that mm. VR battleground thing, and that was 
really awesome. Um, not a lot. My dad is kind of, he knows a bunch of people that are kind of in that field, but mm -hmm. I don't really know that much about it other than there's a lot of augmented reality stuff coming out now. Yeah. That's another interesting thing because that's now we're, now it's happening in, in your world. <laughs> it's altering things. And I think we got a taste of this too. I don't know if any of you had connects on your Xbox 360. We did. Yeah. Do you ever play those, uh, the double fine adventure games, the, yeah. with the lava in your yeah. room. And like, those were so good. They were so simple. But there is something like really weirdly wonderful about like seeing a place you're familiar with with, with lava in it <laughs> or with bubbles or like or with, you know, it's still like just using AR on my phone, you know, every once in a while I forget. I, I remember that I have the ability to put a computer generated dog anywhere I want by looking at my phone screen. And it's like, oh, wait, that's actually pretty funny. Um, but so I think, again, like, how do you, how do you use the fact that people are in a familiar place with AR or in a real place with AR? Like, how do you use that to tell a story differently? And again, you don't, you don't know anything about that person's location except for whatever is happening with coming into the phone, into the device from all those sensors. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, spatial recognition software that's definitely needed for that to work yeah. out. And facial recognition as well. That's true. And that's getting really good. Yeah. Like insanely good, creepily good. <laughs> all right. Last thing I would like to uh, talk about is what we VR is what well, I, I would say VR is the next bit, big thing. It has, it had a rough start, but I feel like it really will take off in the next few years. But what I do want to talk about is what comes after VR. Now, people that were writing books like back in the 16th century, they never would have thought about like transistors coming together to create a visual image on a computer monitor, right? But what do you what do you think would come after virtual reality? Like what what could possibly come that could tell a story? Um it's a good question. I think one of the things that might get might get solved with VR and we keep coming around to like we want we want to be able to go wherever we want inside a game and interact with whatever we want, but that's costly. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about with interactive games and especially with VR games is, um, you know, right now, if we want to play a game online with our friends, we're choosing to play a game with, you know, people who are probably the same, <laughs> the same level of like, acting ability and character making ability. Um, I think D and D is a good example of um, being able to have a, an experience where um, 
you know, you run into new characters and you have friends there that can collaborate with who this character is and what they're doing. If you've got a good dungeon master or GM, um, they can bring that character to life kind of on the fly. How cool would it be to be in like a VR um, RPG or a Skyrim type game, a Witcher type game, and the NPCs that you're running into aren't controlled by AI. They're being run by professional character actors who know the story inside and out, almost more like, you know, the people at Disneyland <laughs> dressed up um, to um, it's weird because it's part of it is technology based, but part of it is not technology, which is relying again on that, the human imagination and the human ability to kind of react on the fly. Um, I feel like those types, like being able to harness that kind of um interaction with real people would be really interesting. Um, I, there is some there, I feel like there is something that we are going to get out of this Renaissance in tabletop role-playing games that will yield un, unexpected benefits in VR and kind of the next generation of video games. And I feel like it's related to that interaction. And I feel like it's related to kind of, meeting the kind of spontaneity and the improvisational aspects of playing tabletop games with that fidelity of, you know, of video games and like being able to easily um, have an environment or characters react to you in a way that feels like they were authored by someone else, but they're actually really dependent on what you're doing would be really cool but hmm. and it's it's a good question it's and you're the lead-in was really good like people hundreds of years ago would never have thought that we can do what we can do now but they also might not have thought that we would still be going to plays and reading books <laughs> and sitting around a table telling stories together with dice yeah <laughs> so you never you never know what's gonna stick mm-hmm me and the boys, we uh, we I asked this question uh, when we were prepping for this, and I think one of the this is the like prototype that we came up with. Imagine like one step after VR would be like neural network mm-hmm. having a device that would like manipulate your neurons mm-hmm. into perceiving not real life but an actual game world. And this game world that you're in, right, is procedurally generated. And so you can actually interact with the world as if it was its own world. Yeah. And it would translate your motor functions into gameplay. And it, it's very similar to uh, this one this one anime that I won't mention, but it... <laughs> It's um, it's incredibly revolutionary to think about. That Wait, why are you could... not going to mention the anime? Oh, because he's embarrassed. Why? It's Sword Art, it's Sword Art Online. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Cite your sources. If it's okay, okay. Yeah, if it's, it's doing just... a good job of relaying this, we should don't be ashamed. <laughs> all right, all right. It's just we're pretty, only ashamed uh... of the stigma it carries with it. Uh, okay, but, but it does create that world very well. Yeah. Yeah, that world is uh, procedurally generated as well, mm-hmm. and the the ultra like the best thing that could come out of that 
would be multiplayer in that Mm -hmm. platform being able to like psychically link up with other players and interact in that world or you can visit their world right Mm -hmm. i'm imagining like minecraft but it's in all in your head yeah this is this has been promised to us for so long (laughs) there's a um you know, obviously, cyberpunk novels have been th- talking about this for a long time. There's a really good book called Snow Crash. Um, I think it's finally getting adapted into something. Um, but it's this idea of this kind of a shared reality that you can directly link into, jack into, um, to avoid having to put something on your face. Um, there's a, a, a I'm going to say it's a, it's a very good movie, but it could be some somewhat disturbing for some people. Um, called Existence by Canadian director uh, David Cronenberg, and it is about um, a game designer, and she makes very successful games, but you play them by kind of immersing yourself, and it is indistinguishable from reality. Um, except what's interesting is like all the things that we know about video games are still kind of persistent here. So like sometimes you'll be talking to a character and they're clearly getting into like, they're kind of stuck in their dialogue loop, trying to pick the right piece of dialogue. And they might repeat dialogue over and over again, which is really weird to see like a live action, real person doing. (laughs) Um, but existence is a really interesting movie because it is, it is not just showing us what that would look like, but also asking questions about like, what what might go wrong if people are in you know in a in in a game that they it's is difficult to distinguish between reality and the game it's really interesting but i think that's a like i said we've been promised that for so long but well it seems like that research is yielding some fruit certainly you know if i can go to target right now and buy a star wars toy that will let me control a little floating sphere with my mind. That seems like we're getting <laughs> baby steps <laughs> for yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. Like baby steps is how most of technology happens. Right. Yep. But it would be incredible to see that in my lifetime. You I know, if there's a good chance. If I'm being honest, that, that, that technology, it does seem a bit more disturbing than not to me personally. Because oh yeah, there's definitely a huge slew of ethical issues that are around it. Because I feel like, like I have two points. The first one is you guys talked about um, neural networking and being able to plug yourself into a game and just completely forget reality and change reality how you want it. I feel mm-hmm. like I feel like the emotional and mental side of that is already exist. It already exists. Yeah. It's just the physical side and the engineering that is yet to be done because. When I see people who play games, they're already so so, so invested in it emotionally yep. that for them, it, it is kind of hard to distinguish that from reality already. But if you start you know, creating technologies like this, I don't know, I can't help but make the parallel to somebody like, if you think about somebody who has schizophrenia, who has a hard time distinguishing what's real and what's not. Mm-hmm. And then you have this is sort of the same thing if you think about it, because it's definitely it's a related. I mean, the effect the effect could be very similar. Yeah, Right, right. I feel I can't help but think that there's well, if that were to happen, then there would be 
quite a flurry of people who would rather live in a fake reality than real reality. Think about how many people that happens to right now. Right. Just with regular video games. Yeah. You know, where you've got a choice between interacting with other real people or spending more time playing a game. Like there that is the other the other superpower slash problem with video games is that immersion, that responsiveness, that, you know, that addictive loop. Right. Can sometimes trigger addictive behavior in people Mm -hmm. like fully immersive, like direct neural stimulative immersion would be problematic for, I think a different type of person, the same type of person and maybe more people. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, there's, like... it's not a, it's not a, it's not a surprise that often when, um, you know, filmmakers and uh, novelists and science fiction authors are thinking about that kind of future. It's not always great. Right. It's always perceived as something very dystopian. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's obviously the health concern about what it could do to your brain cells, right? Right. Yeah. I feel like just like how there are old people now that still tell younger people to stop playing video games because it's bad for like staring at a screen is bad for your eyes, right? Yes, right. I think that there will be people today that will grow up and then they'll see this technology like, oh gosh, no yeah. offense. And they'll say, yeah, hey, that's bad for your brain. And it's just like every generation is going to look at the next one in a kind of negative light, but that's just how it is. It's right. it's so funny too, because that exact same argument for my generation was like, stop watching TV. It's bad for your eyes and it's going to rot your brain. And like they didn't even, the next generation didn't even change the threat. <laughs> it's like video <laughs> games are going to ruin your eyes. Like, right, wait, we already right. went through this. And also it's like, wait a minute, that was, that was your, your parents were the ones <laughs> who got threatened with TV and TV is fine. Right. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, oh, you be careful. You're gonna you're gonna lose your motor functions. Correct. Right. So yeah. it is, but it's really funny. I'm I will be very curious what what like that's that's the real consideration for whatever the next generation of of storytelling game immersive technology is that your that your kids generation might be playing is it it may be incomprehensible to you you may not be able to understand it or think it's great you may think it's horrifying (laughs) in the same way that you know you know an 80 year old person just may not understand except for the you know our our game playing elderly friends that we enjoy but it's right yeah it's hard it's hard i think for me personally i think the issue lies less in like the fact that it'll rot your brain and more like for me, I, I feel like that there has to be some sort of anchor to reality that you have to have mm-hmm. whenever you're immersed in something in order to pull you back. But I feel like when you literally create an actual reality, then there it becomes hard to tell the difference between is this reality real or is yeah. that reality real? Because the anchor sort of dissipates. Yeah. Imagine how it would affect dreams. Oh, 
god, I can't even. Oh, yeah. that, that's an it's entirely different. <laughs> yeah, that, that's an entirely different discussion. Honestly, if we just, we could literally talk about this for hours if we go into like the <laughs> philosophical aspect of it. But oh yeah, yeah. Which means it's a worthy yeah. topic. It is a worthy. It is topic. a worthy yeah. topic. True, true. And I am. It's a worthy topic, and I'm glad that we were able to discuss it with you, Tad. Yeah. yeah thanks for inviting me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. All right, Akash. All right. Well, that is it for our episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. We hope you had a wonderful time listening. I want to thank Professor Tad Lechman for sharing his knowledge and understanding and engaging in this conversation with us. I think I speak for everyone when I say that this was an incredibly enjoyable episode of film. So thank you, Professor. You're welcome. And and as for the listeners, I know quarantine can be a challenging situation, but hang in there, play some games, read some books, create your own world in the threshold of your homes like we talked about. In the meantime, if you haven't already, please listen to our other episodes. Those are, uh, we have a lot of, interesting material on those as well please follow us on instagram as well at true leisure podcast we though our instagram is the main medium with which we update you guys we hope you have a wonderful day and stay tuned for the next episode we will be back with some more riveting topics have a good one thank you